0: Well, we are beginning a new series this morning. I'm very excited. I, I'm a little nervous. I've never preached through the life of Moses before. So, we'll all join in this journey together. Um, and we will be looking at Exodus chapter 1 this morning. If you want to turn to your Bible or your, uh, your device to get ready for that, it'll be a passage the entire chapter 1. I remember in seminary I had a professor who made this point, and it really stuck with me. He said that he loved, and I do too, to study or learn about the Revolution, the Revolutionary War here in America. And when we study the Revolutionary War, most of us, as we look at that period, relate. We feel like that's our history. But yet we all also know that most of us, I bet almost nobody in this room, has an ancestor that was actually on this side of the pond. Maybe one of you will come later and say, I do, I can trace my ancestry. But most of our ancestry was not over here, for the Revolutionary War. Yet we read it as if it's our story. And so we come to the Old Testament in the same way. None of us probably have ancestors that were part of the Exodus. But we come to the Old Testament as those that have been grafted in. And we read these stories um, not just to get a like an Aesop's fable, you know, moral out of it, but we read this story because it's our history and also, and primarily because it points to Christ. So we are excited to look at the very real events of the Exodus and of the life of Moses this semester. And as we read, remember, this is our story, your story. So we will read from chapter 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, Okay, I just lost about 90% of you. Refocus, we're through the names. All of the, well, almost all the names. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, very different culture a long time ago, and yet there's no doubt that this Word is living and active, we know Your Spirit is present with us even now, we would ask that You would open the eyes of our hearts to understand more fully Your love and the Gospel before us. Father, we ask these things in Your name. Amen. So, I was told in seminary and preaching, don't ever start off with a poem. So I'm, I'm starting off with lyrics from a song. And if it doesn't work, my professor was correct. Actually, you could do it. You had to be very careful. Who knows David Wilcox? Anyone know David Wilcox? A great musician. From Those of us that are like 40 like this guy. A lot of great songs. And he wrote one that I remember hearing right after 9-11 called Show the Way. And he says this. You say you see no hope. You say you see no reason we should dream that the world would ever change. You say that love is foolish to believe because there will always be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream and put the fear back in your life. And he says this, Look, if someone wrote a play to just glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? And he goes on to explain that that you you can hold on and trust as dark as things go that the hero is coming. And that really is the message behind Exodus is as bad as it's going for these people, as bad as it's going for the Israelites, the hero is on his way. And what we are going to see this morning and this entire series, I want to just pound it into my own heart and into yours, is that your God loves you and your God is rescuing you. Do you believe that? So the things we're going to look at to unpack that this morning are who needs to be rescued? Who are the people? Right? What do they need to be rescued from? The problem. That's number two. And then how? How are they going to be rescued? What's God's plan? And those three things seem obvious. But I promise you, to the degree that your Christian walk isn't where you want it, you're not believing these three things. So let's look at them a little bit more closely. The people. It's very easy for us to hear the word people or see this idea. That there's this group, and just think of the masses, and forget that God knew them individually and particularly. Yet the language is very clear. Right there at the very beginning of Exodus, God or the writer is Moses, but God is giving us the names, right? Reuben and, and Simeon and Levi and Judah, he's giving very specific names. And to the original audience who would read this, they would understand the meaning behind this and the lineage behind this that there were actual people that comprised the Israelites, right? And then in an even more fascinating aspect, I think, is the fact that he names the midwives. We're going to talk more about the midwives later, but I remember studying for ordination, and one of the trick questions are, you might memorize this, what are the names of the Hebrew midwives? Nobody, almost nobody can answer that, but it's Shifra and Pua. God is naming these people. God has very particular people in mind. And furthermore, in Exodus, it's, what, what makes Exodus so interesting as we're starting it is it really links to Genesis. The very first Hebrew word in the book of Exodus is the word and, the Hebrew word for and. So it's this continuation of the story of Genesis. What's the story of Genesis? Let's spend the next five weeks on that, and then we'll come back to Exodus. Um, the story of Genesis is really, after the beginning and Adam and Eve and the fall, is the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People, right? The very name, isn't it fascinating, the very name that the Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, uses is not the Hebrews, but he says, behold, the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, they are a named people, right? And we know as you go into the New Testament, Jesus speaks very clearly in the book of John, chapter 10. My sheep, I know them by name, and they know my voice. Where is your theology in regards to that? How practical is it? If you are a Christian and you're here this morning, do you think God knows me by name? Or do you just think I'm sort of generally part of this group that we call ourselves Christians? We, we've been doing the confession of faith from Heidelberg Catechism 1, but one of the statements it says is that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. You know, and it begins, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, and in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Is that your view of who you are in Christ? That he knows you that particularly? Um, I remember reading in the book, I think it was in Blink, this idea of facial recognition. It, it's amazing how we can recognize people. There's something about the human mind That in a crowd of a 1,000 people, and you're looking for, say, your spouse or your child, your brain will instantly see them. And and scientists are trying to figure out what creates that recognition. Why can our brain glaze over an entire crowd and, and just all of a sudden you see the one whom you're looking for? And is that your view of God towards you? That God has a people. That God has someone, has... A group and has particular individuals that from the beginning of time, he's called his own. Um, why is that so difficult to believe? I think theologically, some of us want to do this game where we, we think, that just doesn't sound fair. I mean, if, if God is sovereign, and God has people, even though I think maybe I believe in Jesus, so maybe I'm one of them, what about those people who aren't in that group? I don't talk a lot about sovereignty, and I don't talk a lot about predestination, but I think it comes out in these stories. And I would answer the question, you'll never find a place in Scripture where someone wanted to join into God's people, and he said no. right? Anytime someone's like, I want to be part of this group, what does he say? You are part of this group, and I've always known you. And I think the midwives are the most striking example of this. Scholars aren't sure whether they were actually Hebrew or whether they were Egyptian or whether they were something else that was serving as midwives. But the fact is, they're named, and they feared God, and he blesses them. And the idea of fearing God is simply that they recognize God. When you think of Rahab, the prostitute in the book of Joshua, or in the, um, yeah, I'm looking for people to just give me a... Rahab, who was a prostitute, believed God It was credited to her as righteousness, right? So I just want to throw that out there that lest you be fearful, do you count yourself as one of the people of God? You do not have to be afraid. If you want it, it's yours and and the offer is yours. So there's the people of God. But there's also the problem, and I think that's probably the most astounding aspect of the book of Exodus is this major problem that Moses is coming to fix the problem of slavery and oppression, right? If you know the story, the people, uh, you know, Joseph was sold into slavery, okay? So he was Jacob's son, his favorite son. In Genesis, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember the story? And here he is. um, He goes to Potiphar's household, then he ends up in the jail of, of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he interprets dreams. Primarily dreams that said, there's a famine coming. And if you allow me to, I can oversee this process so that the famine won't affect Egypt. Pharaoh likes the idea, brings him out, makes him the second in command behind Pharaoh. And indeed, Egypt flourishes during this famine. And then all these other nations have to start coming to Egypt because they're starving. And lo and behold, his brothers show up, right? That's where the group of Israelites are coming from. They show up, they reconcile, and they actually are given honor and glory in this place. It's beautiful. 400 years passed. And that's what we find in Exodus. And Joseph died and all of his brothers died. And here's what you have, a new king. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There is a significant concept going on there. He didn't know him. Doesn't mean he had no recollection or couldn't find him in the annals of, of of the histories. It's simply he didn't care. He didn't recognize him. He didn't honor him. And so... If anything, the king is this Pharaoh is almost an image of Satan and that his goal was to eradicate the problem of Israel. On one hand, they wanted Israel to flourish just enough to be a good slave, right to build the things that like the pyramids and all the things we see that we think of of Egypt. I'm not sure that the Hebrews were involved in all those things, but they were involved in some. But there's also this risk of them growing so mighty that they have to kind of, Wipe them out. And look at the solution. The first solution is the taskmasters, right? In verse 11, laying heavy burdens and um, making them build storehouses of Pithom and Ramses. So you have this kind of irony that they're they're slaves, but they're slaves to make Pharaoh look more famous and more godlike. That's their role. But then, in the midst of all of this oppression, they grow. They become stronger. They become more powerful. So, Pharaoh decides to kill the sons. And that's shocking. And in the midst of that problem that they have, God provides, and we're going to talk about that provision in a minute, but I want you to know, how do we relate to that? I mean, it's really hard as a preacher to go, I want to really be faithful to this passage, but I'm talking to all of you guys, none of who are slaves right now. Right? I mean, we're all, we have it. Going on. Unless you work at Amazon, your life is really good right now. Okay. Some of you saw the article. Apparently Amazon makes people work 80 hours a week, and, which I'm thankful I get my packages on time, but that's a lot of hours. How do we relate to these people? How are we, you know, since we are completely free, it's very hard to relate. I remember when I was in RUF, I would sit down with students and and I'd find students having a really difficult time wanting to talk about their problems, like my, my parents or my, especially if they came from good homes. Because the thought was, it was not near as bad as I know some of the students had it. Right? But one of the things I wanted to impart to them is that sin is sin. Oppression is oppression. As good as we have it in America today, why are we on more antidepressants than ever before? Besides the fact that they're just available. Why is there more suicide? Why, does, why is morality seemingly just falling lower and lower? I would say that we are definitely struggling with sin. And in, our, in the New Testament, this word slavery, in the book of Romans, Paul equates with sin. He says... He talked about Jesus. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, talking about Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So here's my question. The first point we talked about was, do you see yourself in the counted among the people of God? But secondly, do you see yourself as being somebody who's enslaved to sin? Now here's where we're a little different at grace, I think. A lot of churches I grew up going to would say something like this. You're, before you became a Christian, you had this flesh, this sin nature, right? And then you came to Christ, and now you're a Christian. Well, what no one kept telling would tell me was, guess what? That sin nature is still there. You may not be enslaved to it in the way that Paul's talking about, but it is present, and it is, it is violence, Right? You are constantly bombarded with your flesh. I have met with people over the last few weeks in my own life, I've noticed this, who we would all confess to you guys, I struggle. They would say, I struggle with something that's that's enslaving me. And these are Christians. And I'm a believer. I want you to know that if you want to grow in your Christian life, you better begin to understand you struggle. And quit acting like it's just something for the non-Christians out there. I was reading a blog post by another pastor um, and he was talking about a woman uh, that was in his congregation that he sort of had to confront. Which I'm, i They were really close friends and, and he had to kind of talk to her about her one of her sin patterns that were pretty out, outlandish anyway. And she emails him. And he opens the email just scared to death how she's going to lash out. And here's what she wrote. Can I be honest with you? can I share with you about some of the demons that haunt me? It feels risky to say these sorts of things to my pastor, but here goes. I doubt my love for Jesus. Sometimes I don't think I really love Him at all. I wonder if I'm just playing a game, going through the motions because I enjoy being around Christians. Almost like I'm saying I love Jesus, but maybe this is just a strategy to have Christian friends. Sometimes I feel like a well-intended fraud. This terrifies me. I fear being invisible to people I enjoy, irrelevant to my church and my friends, disconnected from my family, and that what I have to offer will be dismissed. I fear that I'm an outsider to things I really want to be a part of. And she ends up by saying, struggling on, and then her name. And what his response was, not, oh no, this is far worse than I ever thought, but thank you she's finally opening up to her heart that she is struggling. And the actual title of that blog post was Be Kind, Every Person You Meet is Hiding a Hidden Battle. Do you know your battles? Are you in touch with yourself enough to know this is my sin? This is my pattern? What are you struggling with? Now let me be... It may be an outward thing. It is. There's outward manifestations of all of our sins. Some of it's secret. Some of it's blatant. But how do you begin to notice where it's coming from? For her, it was coming from shame, right? She was trying to be someone that she didn't feel like she really was. So she was putting on a mask. And that mask came out in the form, in her case, of like she would tear people up, she was kind of crass, different things like that, so he talked to her about it. But she finally confessed, deep down, I'm just scared. And I'm struggling. The gospel is for sinners. As a Christian, you're still someone who struggles with sin. Are you approaching the gospel in such a way where you know the way you need Jesus to heal you? Where you know the ways you're running from Him? Are you being honest with your sin? What are the sort of things you struggle with? We, all of our, it's hard to preach to my four kids sitting here, or three of the four, but it's very hard for us to let our children go to school. I don't know, parents, if you all feel this way. It's like, okay, go in there to a place where everyone's going to try to be mean to you and, and be out for number one, and, you know, but go in there and how you know, I appreciate your prayer, Dave, because, you know, the teachers might be sinful, and, you know, the kids, I'm worried about the kids. The teachers are one thing, but the kids are going to just smear your face in it just to make themselves look better. And, of course, then the other problem is so am I. Um, and then you realize as adults, and I know all of the college students, you've got to be feeling this way. I talked to freshmen, I can't, I, I went to UCO my freshman year, so I never had that first experience of walking out, but I, I feel for you guys, walking onto the campus, or maybe you're back again and it's just like, do I know anybody? Does anyone know me? And what begins to happen is all of our insecurities come out in crazy ways, right? And there's, that never goes away, so cheer up on that one. But that's the point, do you at least recognize it? If you can at least recognize it, then you can turn to our third point which is the plan. See, I don't think that the Israelites even knew, they were more like a frog in hot water. I'm not sure they realized the level of their slavery until it was too late. They were enjoying life, everything was great. Did you hear there's a new king? Great, a new king. Hope you likes Joseph, you know. And the next thing they know, it's like, we're working harder than we used to. This is strange. Um, and pretty soon, they get, they're tr- the guy's trying to kill their kids. You know, and I'm not even sure how much they knew of that because the midwives rescued them. But that's the situation they were in. It's not a perfect comparison, but it's there. And even in the New Testament, over and over, our, our sin patterns are related to the sin of Egypt over and over. So it's, it's a clear comparison. And now we need to look at the plan. What is God going to do about this? Do you have a pro- you know your problem? Is God rescuing you? I'm blown away by the plan of God's rescue in the book of Exodus, because while the while the Israelites don't even really seem to be complaining at the at the point that we're reading, God's already rescuing them from their problem. Right? It's most clear when you see the fact that. These all these efforts to basically oppress them, make them stop, I guess procreating was the goal. They're having more babies, right? Look at, look at verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and it grew exceedingly strong. But then the king steps in and he makes them work very hard. And in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. They're like rabbits. It's like... Nothing you can do can thwart us. We're going to grow and become a mighty group. Right? And then he goes even further to have the sons killed. Right? And it says uh, um, in verse 20 so God dealt well with the midwives, and now they're having the people multiplied and grew very strong. And now the midwives get families. Like God is completely protecting them, He has this plan of protection. But let's go back to Exodus or to Genesis fifteen. And this is where you see the sovereignty of God's plan. In Genesis fifteen, we have Abraham's covenant with God. And here's what God says to Abraham, fifteen, verse twelve, or thirteen. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God had a plan. Even before the problem struck, He not only knew that that was coming, but He knew He was going to deliver them. Do you think that God feels that way about you? Do you you believe that God is already orchestrating your deliverance? So what does that plan even look like? Um, actually, I want to I illustrate this because uh, I haven't done a Braveheart illustration lately. So there's a scene in, I may have actually done this illustration, but there's so many new people it's okay. There's a scene in Braveheart where things are going well. William Wallace is off and running and collecting new people all the time. And remember the guy from Ireland that shows up that's crazy? And there was another guy with him. I don't know who the, what his name was, but he was there. And so you knew the guy from Ireland was crazy. I'm sure he has a name. You probably know his name. And there's a scene where out, out in the woods, you know, Wallace is hunting, I guess, a deer. And then you see this Irish guy coming up with his knife. You're like, oh, he's crazy. He's going to kill William Wallace. Oh, no. What's going to happen? And then at the last second, what you realize, as he throws his, like, whatever weapon it was, I don't even remember which medieval weapon this was flying at at William Wallace. He was actually killing the other dude who was trying to kill William Wallace. Follow me? So, the way it was all done was all this while, the very thing that would look like danger was actually serving to protect William Wallace. And it just, that that was a good scene because I, I always thought to myself, how great would it be to have a guy like that? Who just all, remember the scene where he's in the field and he's, he's about to be taken, William Wallace's, and the Irish guy again shows up and single-handedly, picks him up, puts him on the horse and rides away. Wouldn't it be great if we all had like that guy? I want that guy on my, as my wingman. Okay, not to be too cheesy. But we do. God is looking out for you. I mean, the fact that he is sending I mean, you can't imagine if you're watching the movie and you hear the, the king of Egypt say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill the sun." The women who would give birth, the very first people to come into contact with your babies, going to kill them. And lo and behold, God's already gotten to those women. And they're like on His side. He's already figured it out. He's already protected. Is that your view of God's protection? Do you believe this is true for you? It's very difficult to believe it's true, isn't it? But what does that plan have at the center? And we're going to talk more about this next week is it has a person, doesn't it? The fact that in chapter 2, God's solution is this little baby is shocking, is it not? And not only is it a little baby, but it's a little baby in a basket who's sent down the river, right? That's His solution. And we all obviously we know, and we'll talk a lot about this semester, the fact that God... Had another baby. I find my verse in the form of Jesus, and in Hebrews three, goodness, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews three tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. He says in verse three, "For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself." Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. Jesus is the better Moses. And God has you in mind by sending his son. And here's the question. Have you received Christ? Are you a Christian? But are you living in Jesus? Are you walking in Christ? Because what we do is we get into problems, we get into the, the sins of our life, and we tell ourselves, we'll climb out of them on our own. We will figure our way out. And then we'll go run to Jesus. right? But Jesus but God is saying, here's the plan. You don't even know how far gone you are. You don't even know how far lost you are, even though you claim me as me you may even be a Christian, you're in the, you walk with me, you love me, but you still don't realize how enslaved this sin you are. And I'm already providing your rescue. What do you have to do? Do you have to get yourself better? Do you have to, to clean up? Do you have to go six months without doing that one thing or whatever it is? Or do you simply run to Jesus and say, I'm yours? Now, I want to I read again from the Heidelberg Catechism because we're going to confess it in a few minutes, but it says, My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in Heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Jesus loves you, even if you're running. If you are a Christian and you have turned, you're you're, you're in the midst of sort of living out simple acts. I would ask you to turn to Jesus, not by getting yourself better, but by knowing that He loves you and has provided a way. He has already planned for this. And when we come to the table in a few minutes and we take these elements, what are we doing? We are confessing and professing and living out our union with Christ. If you are a believer, He didn't just rescue you, He became one and the same with you. You are now forever His. And the things that look good to all of us that we think we need in this life to in order to live become our prisons. And he has rescued us from that as his people, and we can turn to him completely. So, the three points we talked about as we go forward. You believe you're his person, your name, that he has loved you from the foundation of time. Do You believe you have a problem, even though you're his person, that you have a sin nature that's Currently, as active as it's ever been, and trying to deceive you? And finally, do you believe he has a plan to rescue you through his son Jesus?